Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Morning, church. Uh, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here. You already met Tiana. Come on, Jason. Um, hey, a couple of things. Um, you guys are high schoolers, right? Okay, you're, I was just not that big in high school. I apologize. Um, but welcome. We have a high school from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, yeah. Uh, things I know about Oklahoma is that it's a state. Um, that's it. Um, so, but when you go uh, to Loyola or Northwestern or wherever you go up here for college, you are more than welcome uh, to come here. We're excited to have you in the next couple of years. Um, another thing, a little bit uh, on a sadder note, um, I just wanted to, to mention it. Uh, Uptown did lose a giant of the community this week. Um, I don't know if you all saw, but we lost, uh, and, and a giant in our community, uh, Tim Bagley passed away. And so... Um, we'll be having a service. We'll be, we'll be talking about when that is here in the future. We're just sort of trying to figure that out with his family. But I just wanted to say, uh, Tim was a really, really valuable piece of our community. Um, he was just really, really great with the kids and with everyone in this community. And so we're going to dearly miss him. So wanted to, to say that. Let's take a breath because I'm about to jump into a hard turn <laughs> and I don't want to do it too quickly. So let's just take a breath. Okay. Now, that being said, I think one of the wildest movies I have ever seen is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? Now you understand why I took a breath, because I don't want to move too quickly. Now, spoilers ahead, but if you have not watched the 1971 movie or read the 1960, what, 64 book, I'm just going to guess that you're not going to at this point or that you never will. So here's the premise, right? An incredibly rich man who owns a candy powerhouse invites over five children in order to show them the factory. But it ends up being a test of who has the highest character, right? And then along the way, and then they're going to just like inherit the chocolate factory. I don't really understand. And then along the way, the kids just sort of start to do things to disappear. Like that is wild, right? Gene Wilder, to be more specifically. Um, one of you got that. Cool. Uh, now, Obviously, the theme of the story is that character trumps any other life circumstances, right? Like, character becomes what's most important, right? Charlie is the good kid, and he wins out. The bad kids go away, right? But I think the theme of sort of like you get what you deserve is a little bit too shallow, is it not? Let me show you. First off, let's walk through the kids, right? We have Augustus. What is Augustus's sort of sin, right? Yeah, I think you said it, but I have no clue what you said. Um, he's greedy, right? He's gluttonous, right? He's so gluttonous that he goes for the fudge river, he gets sucked up into a tube, and he becomes fudge himself, right? Some of you who haven't seen this are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Second, we have Violet, the, gu the gum chewer, right? Does anyone know what her sin is? Okay, good. Uh, she's disobedient, right? She's disobedient to the point where Willy Wonka is like, do not chew that piece of gum. And she's like, and she's a gum chewer, right? But she's like, I'm going to chew that piece of gum. What happens to Violet? She turns Violet, right? Yeah, she becomes a blueberry. Veruca, 
is next. Oh, Veruca. Uh, Veruca is only there because her father bought thousands and thousands of boxes of chocolate in order to get the golden ticket. You know why? Because Veruca wanted the golden ticket, and Veruca got what she wanted, didn't she? You see, Veruca was spoiled. She was so spoiled that she gets thrown out through the trash chute with the rest of the things that are spoiled, right? And finally, you have Mike TV. All Mike wants to be is a movie star to the point where he doesn't have a relationship with his parents. His parents sort of try to talk to him, and he's just, like, watching his games. You know, I want to tell you guys, I watched the, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the remake. Don't. Oh, gosh, it was so weird. It was, uh, anyways. So Mike gets his wish, right? He gets sent into a television, becoming just a few inches tall to where he can be a TV character the rest of his life. You see, it's not just that the kids experience consequences, probably a little bit too strongly, but that's fine. But they became the very vices that troubled them, right? Augustus becomes the fudge. Violet becomes the thing she was disobedient over. Veruca is thrown out because she is spoiled, right? And Mike TV ends up in a TV, right? While this is obviously a silly iteration, the storyline of Willy Wonka highlights an important truth. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. In other words, we start to look like that which we hold most important in our hearts, right? What we worship becomes what we resemble. Our idols become our identity. Beholding is becoming. We're going to explore this uh, topic this morning through Psalm 115, but before we do, let me pray for our morning. Lord, we thank you uh, that we get to gather another Sunday here. Not gathering last Sunday really threw me through a loop and made me miss my family, so I'm glad we're back this morning, Lord. Uh, I just pray that this morning as I preach, what is remembered is from you and not from me, Lord, that we are about your glory, not mine, not Messio days, Lord. So help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth and the power of your spirit. In the name I pray, amen. Now, before we jump in, or before we continue this morning, I guess we've already jumped in, um, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. We are going to be doing a confession time at the end. Um, now, for the high schoolers, that doesn't mean every single person is going to go around and confess things, right? Um, well, I'll explain it at the end, but those who feel led to sort of by the, the sermon to confess things, you'll be able to come up here. I'm telling you that so that you can pay attention to me more this morning, right? Um, that was a joke. You're allowed to. Thank you. Um, no, uh, in reality, I just want you to begin to do the heavy work now. Uh, sort of prep your hearts if uh, it is something you end up feeling led to do. Okay, with that, let's get back into the text. Psalm 115, uh, Geraldine already references, but it begins with a prayer. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Now, upon first reading, it seems as if the psalmist is praying that glory is not ascribed to people, but to God. However, I think that is a bit of a, an issue of the translation where we say not to us. I really think what the psalmist is worried was not about glory being ascribed to people, but he was praying that God show us his glory, not on account of us, but on account of his character. In other words, God show us your glory, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of you, who you are. And that's why he says, because of your love and faithfulness, Lord, show us your glory. Okay, that's great, 
But what does it mean for God to show us his glory, right? Well, glory, uh, which is the Hebrew word kavod, uh, comes from the root word of weightiness. Weightiness is used all sort of ways in the Old Testament. It talks about Job's riches, like his riches are so weighty, right? Uh, it talks about the level of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. It describes the heart of the Pharaoh when we translate it as hardened. It's actually like it becomes weighty, right? So what is in common in all of these situations? What do all these situations have in common? There's a level of weightiness in these situations, in these examples, that affects your experience, okay? So, like, the, it somehow relates to experiential. So, glory is something that experiential. Best put, if you lost me there, God's glory is the ways in which we experience his love, his character, his holiness, right? So, we can talk about God's love, God's character, God's holiness, but once we see his glory, we experience those things firsthand. You with me? Okay, one of you. Thank you, Geraldine. Um, it's, it's moments where you truly experience grace despite your sin. That's God's glory, right? Moments where you're, you are overcome by the beauty of the mountains in states other than Illinois, right? That's God's glory. Glory, are there any mountains in Oklahoma? Okay, I know two things. I know two things about Oklahoma. Um, glory is a weighty experience of God in your midst. So a call for God to reveal his glory is a call for God to reveal himself to the Israelites, to be in their presence, to leave no questions about his character, right? God, show us your glory. But outside of just desiring more of God, why is the psalmist praying that God show him his glory? Well, luckily we have verses 2 to 4. It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Uh, We'll get to verse 4. You see, the implication here is that Israelites were being mocked by the nations, right? Other nations were asking where their God was. You know, where is your God? Our God is right here. You see this gold statue? He's right here. Where's yours, right? So while the psalmist acknowledges that God is in heaven on his throne and he does whatever he pleases him, the psalmist is still asking for the glory of God to be shown to him, right? It's easy to believe what other people say about our God, right? So God, show us your glory. This brings up an important aspect of faith. Faith can look like stating what we know to be true while still asking God for some confirmation of that truth, right? Doubt is not the antithesis of faith, okay? You are allowed to be like, hey, like, I'm going to step out in faith, but I still am not 100% sure on you, God. Like, can you show me your glory? And guess what? He honors those who ask, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then we get to verse 4, which begins the diss track of all diss tracks, right? It's the hit em up by Tupac, or the back to, one of you know who Tupac, okay. Uh, back to back by Drake, right? Or, um, what, is, what is it? Uh, like, Better Than Revenge by Taylor Swift, or Dear John by Taylor Swift, or like, whatever you want to say by Taylor's, right? Like, it's a diss track. <laughs> now, obviously, the psalmist is contrasting our God with their idols, right? They're asking us where our God is, but you're worshiping an idol, which is silver and gold, right? That's the sort of contrast we have here. They're, they're mocking us, but they worship a piece of metal. Sounds kind of fun. But it also contrasts, uh, the contrast also reveals a deep truth uh, that we need to realize, 
we were made to worship, right? We were made to worship. God has oriented our lives to desire to put something in the middle of it as the object of our affection. That's what worship means. And he has done that in order to help us do what is best for ourselves. He has done that so that we put him in the middle of our lives, right? That is what's best for us. However, and I've used this analogy before, but I didn't realize it would be relevant in the year 2023. Um, We are like Indiana Jones in that we attempt to replace that which is weighty enough to worship with a sandbag, right? You guys remember this part? He's got the idol that he's trying to take, and he puts like the same level of weight of a sandbag in its place so that the traps don't set off. However, any sandbag or idol we put a place of God in our hearts, in our lives, will not be weighty enough to place there, right? And so the traps are always going to set off, right? The more common term, and I know you all know this, but I'm still going to say it, the more common term we use for this, and the term that Psalm 115 explores, is idolatry, right? You see, a couple weeks ago, I made fun of the Israelites for worshiping a golden calf, so now I got to do right by them and show them how we do it too, right? Now, our idolatry often does not look like building metal statues or worshiping replicas of God, but just because our idolatry takes on a different form does not mean it's less dangerous, right? So let's explore that. The basic definition of idolatry is when we make something more important than God. We worship the created rather than creator, right? Often we're like, ah, it's putting bad things in the place of, of, of God. But in reality, it's, it's when we make good things ultimate, is it not? There are two universal truths about idols that I want to explore this morning. The first is that idols are strong. They're powerful. They're strong enough to capture our attention and keep it, right? Now, this may be obvious to many of you, but there has to be an element of attractiveness about a certain thing that would motivate us to put it at the center of our lives, right? They're also strong, and we're going to get into this a little bit more at the end, but an element of their strength is also that we are unable to overcome them in our own power, right? In Hosea 11, uh, God is sort of like, He writes this sort of like fatherly love poem to the Israelites, and he says that the Israelites are bent on turning away from me. That's what it says in the ESV. In the NIV, it says, my people are determined, uh, what is it, determined to turn from me in the NIV. Think about the entire Old Testament, right? It's the history of people turning their backs to God. God shows them grace. People come back. People turn their backs to God. God shows them grace. They come back, right? Over and over and over again. You see, Romans says that all of the history recorded in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus was to highlight how deeply people need Jesus, right? Unless the people, unless we see our brokenness, we wouldn't think we needed a Savior, right? But we're not just talking about needing Jesus for salvation, for justification here. Idolatry doesn't just cease to exist. I know you all know this. Sin doesn't just cease to exist once we become Christians, does it? We don't all like grow wings and are perfectly floating above the earth. You know what I mean? Um, I'm actually betting that some of you in here are sick and tired of the way habitual sin rears its ugly head over and over and over, regardless of what you do, right? I know that because I have often been there. Wanting to be better wanting to be more like Jesus, and yet doing what I don't want to do, right? Um, 
I worked, at, I worked in college ministry at Northwestern for a while, um, and my second year was one of the worst, hardest years of my life. You see, my first year of college ministry, I felt sort of like a new believer again. I, like, jumped in, and I was like, man, this is all fresh. I love God. I'm a professional Christian, and I get paid to do this. Like, come on now, right? It was awesome. But then, all of a sudden, as things became less new my second year, I, became, I began experiencing significant negative emotions. Why? I realized that every single time my boss or coworkers asked me how something was going, I, I experienced a negative emotion. It did not matter if that thing was going well. It did not matter if I was knocking it out of the park. Uh, I began to spiral anytime they'd ask me how things were going. Why? I thought they might be disappointed in me, right? And so it sent me into isolation, loneliness, hiding for fear of being disappointing. So I hid my sin. I hid when I didn't think I did things right. I became so self-focused in a negative way, right, in shameful way, that it directly impacted my communion with God. Now, this is something that's not necessarily new in my life. I've always struggled with wanting to please people. But I was working in ministry now, right? I was that professional Christian. Like, shouldn't I be able to get my stuff together, right? I was so sick of believing lies that my value came and how people viewed me, and yet those lies still intrusively uh, took hold in every aspect of my life, right? I bring that up, I bring my own life up to say a lot of us are sick of the ways sin and idolatry root themselves in our, in our lives, right? Uh, idolatry doesn't have to look like explicitly falling to your knees and worshiping another type of God, right? Idolatry is often a lot more subtler and as a result, a lot more dangerous, is it not? Right? All of this to say this. Because idols are stronger than our wills, are over a lot of our temptations, a lot of Christians find themselves disappointed in their walks with Jesus, right? I think we're really good at applying the gospel to our salvation. That God died for my sins, so now I have right living with him. But then we believe we are grace graduates. We're professional Christians, right, even when we're not paid, who can just move on to the deep end of the pool and not utilize the gospel in our lives anymore, right? The reality is, though, that the gospel is not just the ABCs of our faith, but it's the A through Z of our faith. You see, when we first became Christians, Jesus' work on the cross, it, it justified us, right? We were freed from the penalty of sin, Yet the gospel continues to apply through the work of sanctification. Being sanctified means now that the gospel applies in our lives in that we are freed from the power of sin as well, right? Holding on to this, hold, I want you to hold on to this because we're going to get back to this idea and, and, and talk about how to apply it. Okay, so just a reminder, that was our first reality of idols, that they are powerful, right? They are more powerful than we are. Our second universal truth then is that idols are weak. How can it be? Well, there are a lot of tensions in life, okay? All right, let's go back to Psalm 115 to see this. We just read verse 4 where it starts about talking about the idols and the diss track, right? Let's read the rest of the diss track. Their idols have mouths but cannot speak. Come on now. Their eye, they have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. 
nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Can you just imagine the scene where someone's like mocking him? And he's like, yeah, but what can your idol do? Nothing, right? It's pretty dope. All right, this passage is obvious um, to apply with gold and silver idols in the nations, though, is it not? It's like, yeah, that idol can't do anything for you, right? You build it, you worship it, like that's ridiculous. But how does this apply to us in our lives, right? You see, we fall easily into idolatry, into centering something in our lives other than God because idols make promises, right? Think about it. Extramarital sex will make you feel good. Um, More money and then your anxiety will go away, right? If I have this or if I get to do this thing or if I do this thing, if I'm really, really good, I'm a good person, then life will be good life will be right, right? Those are the promises of idols. They're going to deliver what you want. All of these idols will make promises of salvation or of righteousness, and yet they are weak in that they will never be able to deliver what they promise, right? They are not weighty enough in their glory or their power to deliver you what God, only what God can deliver you from, right? So with these two truths in mind, the idols are powerful and they are weak, I want to get into a little bit of practically how we deal with idolatry in our lives. Now, I referred to this idea a few weeks ago, but the most effective way of very specifically identifying idolatry in my life, um, I, I found through this article written by Tim Keller. In it, he explores the idea of surface and source idols. So let's explore that idea as well this morning. Now, Surface idols are things that are more easily spotted as sources of our ultimate affection. I've got a couple of examples up here. Uh, Our image, we get value from how we look, right? Our independence, value based on doing it myself. Our work, our materialism, if I have stuff, if I have money, then I have value. Religion, I am valuable because I am good, right? Same with morality. Uh, Family, my value comes from my children or from my extended family. Relationship. I am valuable because X loves me, right? Fill in the blank. Uh, ideology. I, I, ide- ideology. It's like my brain went blank there for a second. Uh, ideology. I am valuable because I think this way. I think that way. I'm liberal, right? I'm conservative. Like my ideology uh, gives me value. Surface idols are often good things that have become ultimate things, like I already said, right? It's not bad to love your kids, is it? I hope not, because I, I love my kid. Uh, it is, it, thank you. It is bad when you're, you guys like when I thank people for laughing? No? Okay. It is bad when your kids, though, are the ultimate source of your affection and meaning, right? When you're living vicariously through them, they're never going to be able to handle that, right? You can love your spouse immensely, and in fact, I encourage it, right? But when you have given them the role of your Savior— they will never be able to live up to that, right? And in fact, as a result, your marriage is going to be a lot worse off when they're the center of your life. Good things are not weighty enough to be ultimate things, right? Now, surface idols are good to identify and process in ways that you can sort of like root them from your lives. But I'm going to be honest, I can spend 20 minutes with someone and I can pretty much tell them, tell you what their surface idol is predominantly because they're on the surface, right? They're pretty easy to identify. However, uh, I don't think meaningful change can happen when we just identify and attack our surface idols. 
And in fact, I think most of our Christian discipleship has been spent in time on this, where it's like, how can I, how can I help you stop looking at porn? How can I help you stop doing this? How, you know what I mean? When in reality, I don't think that that creates like meaningful change. Some of the, those things are good to do, but if that's all we're doing, then we're, we're going to move from one thing to the other. And we're gonna show, I'm going to show you how that is. So what do we do? I think we have to look at another type of idol, and that's a source idol. Okay? Source idols are the sin behind the sin. They're much harder to spot, much more subversive to the point where they might take years to really understand, right? Uh, now, I've listed four major source idols that I, uh, I've sort of read about and thought about, um, and they are comfort, approval, control, and power. Comfort, approval, control, and power. Instead of just defining them, what I want to do, I actually want to show you the ways in which these can play out even in one surface idol. So say you take money, right, or materialism. It can actually apply to every single source idol. So say you struggle with, like, wanting a lot of money. It, it's not just, like, that leads to one source idol. It can lead to all four. So let's look. See, money materialism. How is comfort behind the money materialism? I will have meaning if I have a certain amount of money in the bank, right? If I'm comfortable, if I'm good with this amount of money, then I have meaning. What about next one? Approval. I know others will respect and appreciate me if I have a good amount of money to spend on them or myself, right? Pretty straightforward. Next one. Control. I won't have as many problems if I always have enough money to deal with them, right? Money fixes my anxiety, right? And then power. I know having more money will allow me to have more influence over other people, right? So do we see how this sort of source idols work? It's like, yeah, okay, I understand that I have some materialism issues, right? But what is it that's really underneath uh, the surface? What is the source? I think this is really important to figure out. Uh, here, look, I'm going to tell you a story that Tim Keller tells. So he, he told this story of this college guy that became a Christian. This guy on the campus was sort of a big deal, right? He also was known. Um, he, was a, he was a campus celebrity. He was known for being someone who was able to sleep around, right? That was his deal. He was able to sleep with virtually any woman he wanted to. Well, this guy becomes a Christian, and it's a huge deal on campus. Uh, he actually seeks help for the sex thing, and he just stops the sex thing, right? He's immediately involved in Bible studies and whatnot. Yet, after a little bit of time, and after getting a little bit of knowledge, the guy starts to argue with people in every Bible study they have, right? He becomes a know-it-all and is really rude to people who seem to not know as much as him or not get it the way he gets it, right? It gets so bad that he drives away people in the ministry that he was saved in, right? What happened? Well, they started to dig with him, and what they found is that sex for him was not necessarily about the good feelings, but it was about the power he felt with the status of being that guy, right? He liked that he had that much influence, that he could have sex with anyone he wanted, and when he no longer sought, it, sought that feeling through sex, he found it in being able to control the Bible studies he was in, Right? See, power was his source idol, and he had only dealt with a surface idol. Unless we dig into what the motivation is behind the centering of our surface idols, we will jump from surface idol to surface idol to surface idol until we really deal with what's underneath, right? Which leads us to ask two questions. How do we, de how do we determine our source idols, and then what do we do once we have determined them, okay? First, and how to identifying uh, I think the best way to do it is sort of ask questions of the problem emotions you have. Now, 
Emotions are not a problem. They're a good thing. They're not always right, right? But they're still a good thing. So in saying like identify emotions, I'm not saying like stop. Like I identify that I'm sad. It leads me to realize that I really wanted this and I didn't get it, right? That doesn't mean that you have to stop being sad or mad or all of those ads. You know what I mean? But what it does mean is that the things that elicit in us strong responses are often linked to our idols, right? The way I did that, so the way I sort of figured out the approval thing that I was talking about earlier was, was this way. I, every time I had a strong emotional response in a negative way, I wrote it down in a journal. And every time I wrote it down, I wrote down the circumstances that were around it. Now, for everyone outside, it was probably super obvious, but I had to write down probably 30 times that I was, I was anxious every time my boss asked me a question to realize, like, man, I, like, love approval, <laughs> you know? It, it might have been a little bit more obvious to other people, but I just wrote them down over and over and over and over again until I sort of was able to map out a pattern, right? I think this is a really, really valuable thing to do, and I really encourage you. If you're like, man, I've been just been struggling with this one thing over and over and over, like, dig in a little bit deeper. It's really warm, guys. I'm going to take my sweatshirt off. Um, dig in a little bit deeper, right? It is absolutely worth it. Nailed it. Um, okay. Another way we can do this uh, is, is to begin to ask yourself some questions surrounding some of these, like, problem um, emotions, things like that. So I have some questions up here for you. We're not going to have time this morning to process them, so maybe if you want to take a picture, write them down. But I'm, let me just read these, right? What do you worry about most? When things go poorly or get difficult, what do you do? Are there any patterns? What do you often find yourself daydreaming about? Next page. Thank you, Daniel. Or uh, Taryn. Uh, early in relationships, what do you find yourself sharing about yourself? What do you want to be known for? What is the thing that if you had it, you tell yourself, this would really make me happy? Bye, Aaron. Uh, and what is your greatest nightmare, right? So, as you begin to process these questions, it may take some verbal processing in our community or in your community in uh, Tulsa, which is also flat, um, to help identify what is true, right? Sometimes we know our, ourselves best in certain areas. But if you're anything like me, and I know I am, right, the reality is, is that I'm a pretty bad, like, narr I, I'm an unreliable narrator when it comes to myself, right? I want to defend myself. I want to hide things. And so I tell the story about myself to myself that is just often not true. These have to be processed within a community. And so I want to invite you. I'm one of the pastors here. I didn't ask Tiana, but I'm sure she'd be fine with it. Like, if, if there are things that you want to process, if there are things where you're just like, I can't figure this out, like, I invite you to invite me or someone else to get some coffee and talk through it, right? We have to process these things in community. Okay, so this is how we begin to identify our source idols. We're landing the plane. We're good, everyone. Um, the question then becomes, what do we do once we find them, right? Think about the, like, uh, the Joker line where he's like, I just chased cars and then I caught a tire and didn't know what to do. It's like, what do you do once you get the source idol, right? This is, what I, this is where what I said earlier comes into play, that the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. So how does this apply practically? Well, as we identify these source idols, we begin to see that these idols really are deep-seated needs in our life, are they not? 
comfort, approval are not inherently bad. They're not inherently bad things. In fact, we were made to experience them, right? But when we try to experience them in the wrong things, that's where they got, go bad, right? Now, control and power can go pretty badly. And they sound a little bit more negative, but think about it, like control. We were made to, like, desire to experience, a, like, a controlled space or sort of, like, non-chaotic space, right? God created the world from chaos into order, right? And so that's, I think, where we get some of the control or power. Like, we were made to be people who influence one another because we were made for community, right? And so some of that feeling of power, when it's perverted, is when we get issues of power and control and things like that. When it's not, we're, like, mutually having influence over each other's lives. So do you see how a lot of these sources come from deep-seated needs, right? So then what do we do with them? Let, let's take approval, for example. Let me give you an example. Uh, Galatians 1.10 says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, we were made to experience approval. But when we seek that approval outside of God in a way that censors the creation and not the creator, we participate in idolatry, right? So, we fight these source idols by reminding ourselves of the gospel truth that is related to each one, right? What is true of our approval from God? That God approves of us as a daughter or son because God gave us the free gift of grace through, the, through his son, Christ Jesus, in his death and resurrection, right? You're struggling to remember that God approves of you? I sure do. You know what I did after I wrote out all those problem emotions? I wrote out a prayer that reminded me about my approval from my boss was not where my worth came from, but my approval from God. And that had already been found in Jesus, right? And then I wrote out Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. But God, God will rejoice over you with loud singing, right? I mean, come on now. When I let that truth sit with me, that the God of the universe approves of me, not because of anything I've done, am doing, will do, but because of Jesus, like how does that not melt away the need to find approval from my boss, right? Like God loves me. I don't care how you feel. I kind of care, but I don't care how you feel. You know what I mean? Right? We can do this with each one of our source idols. Identify with as much specificity as you can the ways you buy into these different source idols, the way you believe lies, right? And then write out the gospel truth that addresses them. You have to identify directly how your surface and source idols play out and with the help of others, identify the way the gospel directly flies in the face of the lies you believe, right? I literally had note cards where I had specific prayers for when I experienced those problem emotions, and I would just read it out. I'd pray it over my life. And you know what? Didn't believe it at first. Didn't really help. But the more I did it, the more repetitive it became, the deeper it went, right? And I knew how to deal with those things. Like, we're still going to experience those desires, but what we do in the midst of that desire is really what defines us, right? Okay. So, with that, you guys remember how we started this morning? Willy Wonka, right? And how we become what we behold? Let's end with that. 
You see, after the psalmist lists out what is true of the idols of the nations, in, uh, if you've got the next slide, yeah, so, you know, does the disc track. Look at what he says on the next slide in verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them, right? They were, behold, they were becoming what they were beholding. You see, what the psalmist is getting at is that those idols that they're trusting in, those idols that can't speak, can't hear, can't feel, can't move, that they can't do anything because they aren't alive, right? And what's the opposite of alive? Dead, right? And those who trust in idols, they'll be just like them. Dead, right? The more we behold dead things, the, the more we become like these dead things. But praise God, the opposite is true, right? See, he's highlighting that eternal life and abundant life only comes through trusting and beholding Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Just as those who behold idols will become like them in their lifelessness, so too will those who behold Jesus become like him in his life abundantness, right? Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 if you don't believe me. I'll just use the, the word. And we all who with unveiled... I'm getting there. Uh, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Let me reread that because I inter uh, interrupted myself. And we all, that's us, who with unveiled faces contemplate, behold, right, Jesus's glory are being transformed into his image, are becoming more like him with ever-increasing glory. And it comes through the Spirit, right? Do you understand how profound that is? How wild that is? That we become more like Jesus the more we put him in the center? When we are attacking these source idols with gospel truth, what we are really doing is beholding Jesus and his glory that was revealed through his life, his death, and his resurrection, right? A glory that defeats death and brings life abundant. And we become more and more like him the more we do this. That is wild, y'all. You're frustrated with that reoccurring sin in your life. You're sick and tired of white-knuckling your way into a moral lifestyle. Behold Jesus, right? Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race with endurance that was marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? Looking to Jesus, beholding Jesus, who was the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beholding is becoming, becoming right? It's time to ask yourself what it truly is you are beholding, and as a result, becoming. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.